Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a special bonus episode of our podcast as we share the recording from our Fall 2023 Book Club author event. My colleague Jasmine Obeseker interviews speaker and researcher Amy L. Sherman, author of the book Agents of Flourishing. Named by Christianity Today as one of the 50 most influential evangelical women in the U.S., Dr. Sherman is the author of seven books and over 100 articles and essays. This conversation is a fascinating glimpse into the Women's Scholars and Professionals Book Club community and a wonderful opportunity to get to know Dr. Sherman and the ideas in her book, Agents of Flourishing. Our book club finale episode begins with Jasmine's introduction of our guest, and we'll cap it off after the credits with an excerpt from the conversation where Dr. Sherman talks about thriving as a single person. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the finale of the Fall Book Club hosted by InterVarsity's Women Scholars and Professionals. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Amy Sherman, author of Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society, join us. Dr. Amy Sherman directs Sagamo Institute's Center on Faith in Communities. The Center on Faith in Communities is a capacity-building initiative for congregations and faith-based and community-based organizations. Its aim is to help leaders invest more strategically and effectively in their communities as agents of mercy, justice, and hope. Dr. Sherman has led several major Sagamore research projects, including the first major study of faith-based intermediary organizations, the largest national survey of Hispanic church-based community ministries in the U.S., the largest survey ever of Christian women on their giving and volunteering patterns, and a six-city demonstration project on financial literacy for urban youth. Dr. Sherman has been named by Christianity Today as one of the 50 most influential evangelical women in the United States. She has authored seven books and over 100 articles and essays. Dr. Sherman also works closely with Made to Flourish, a pastor's network for the common good focused on issues of faith and work. Her book on that topic, Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good, was named Book of the Year in the Christian Living category by Christianity Today in 2013. Amy Sherman is a frequent speaker and trainer at gatherings for congregational and nonprofit ministry leaders and has led multiple evaluation projects for faith-based organizations. Amy's devotional, Sharing God's Heart for the Poor, 
has sold over 50,000 copies and is used often by church groups going on short-term missions. She has written several other resource guides as well for clergy and community development practitioners. Amy is founder and former executive director of Charlottesville Abundant Life Ministries, a holistic, cross-cultural, whole-family church-based outreach in an urban neighborhood of approximately 380 lower-income families. She earned her BA in political science at Messiah College and her MA and PhD in international economic development from the University of Virginia. She volunteered for several years as a senior fellow with the International Justice Mission, is a member of the Church of the Good Shepherd in Charlottesville, Virginia, and is a passionate UVA men's basketball fan. Thank you for being with us tonight, Amy. It's, it's a great privilege for us and welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we delve into the book, can you tell us a bit about your faith journey? What are some formative experiences in coming to Christ? Yeah, well, um, I've had kind of an eclectic um, journey and background for which I'm really grateful. I I grew up um, and my mom uh, up in up in Western New York and my mother was part of a, a pretty liberal Methodist church and I got involved there um, and was pretty active in the youth group and stuff. And I, I didn't really know anything about, uh, you know, I call it now a more liberal mainline church, but of course I didn't have the vocabulary for that. Um, as a kid, um, I just knew that it was a great experience in terms of learning about how Christians ought to care for other people, um, particularly people in disadvantaged circumstances. And so I got to go on, you know, these little mission trips where we were helping out in uh, Appalachia, helping out the rural poor. Um, and that just had a, had a really huge, uh, impact on me. Uh, I didn't grow up in wealth, um, but, um, being exposed to pretty significant material poverty, uh, mm. in Appalachia was, a was a searing experience and was this kind of thing that made me have this sense of calling, even as a young person that, um, my life was going to have something to do with, um, you know, kind of helping people, um, or, or being involved in, uh, strategies for ad addressing poverty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was pretty important. Um, I, um, I actually came to Christ, uh, as, as is sometimes the way we, uh, we phrase it, um, at a, at a Christian summer camp. Um, and then ended up, um, through a, a long series of circumstances, um, attending Messiah College, which is a, uh, Christian liberal arts school, a uh, small school in Pennsylvania. And that was just wonderful. Um, I was a relatively new Christian and, um, I think the big experience there at Messiah had to do with recognizing this idea of a Christian worldview mm -hmm. um, and this, this idea that God um, like the life of the mind is really important. Mm -hmm. And um, th these were concepts I didn't really ever hear about. 
Um, they, I'm sure they were old hat to most of the students mm-hmm. that were at, at Messiah. But for me, it was all brand new. I'm like, well, who, who's C.S. Lewis? Who's he? You know, <laughs> so that, you know, is that kind of that kind of thing. So that was that was fairly formative, um, I think. And uh, yeah, so there, those are a couple of couple of things. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Uh, yeah. And so what were your motivations for writing Agents of Flourishing? Yeah, um, I think it was a couple couple of different things. Um, one of them is, I'm sure a lot of you ladies um, are aware just of the increasing uh, disaffection, you know, among younger Christians for the church mm. um, and being concerned about that and um, and really wanting to both acknowledge <laughs> that um, there's a lot of good reasons for being pretty darn upset uh, mm-hmm. about what a lot <laughs> that's going on, you know, today uh, mm-hmm. in, in the church, but at the same time, um, wanting to encourage folks that um, God loves his bride and has, you know, really important plans for his church and is using his church Um on the front line of his mission in the world and wanting to find examples of where churches are really living into the mission of God in the world and, and highlight their stories, not because they're perfect churches in any way, um, but because they're just, they're struggling to be faithful. Um, they're struggling to live into this, um, you know, call of um seeking the the shalom of their mm-hmm. of their communities and so i wanted to i wanted to spotlight those churches i wanted to honor them i wanted to tell their stories um for you know for our encouragement and and for the cultivation of um imagination right i mean i'd love to see many more churches um do the kinds of stuff that the churches that I write about in the book uh, are are doing. Yeah, so you talked about young people and most of uh, uh, people that read your book work with young people in, co- in colleges. So uh, my next question talks about uh, you referring to Miroslav Wolf's observation that many people think about human flourishing in terms of an individual's experiential satisfaction. Uh, and as we teach and interact with our students, how can we give them a vision that is greater than themselves and a vision of communal flourishing rather than just individual satisfaction? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I should preface by saying I'm not a college professor, so I don't have a lot of hands-on interaction kind of with the with the younger generation, I am really privileged um, to run a, to to help run um, a fellows program with recent college graduates. Mm -hmm. I do that in collaboration with a gal that teaches up at Hope uh, College in Michigan. And we've got these 30, 29, uh, you know, 20 somethings that we gather with once Mm -hmm. a month. And so I do have, you know, I have a little bit of, of touch points, but I'm no expert on sort of, you know, this generation and what do they care about and what are they really passionate about and yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, I guess I, I guess my sense of hope that we can encourage people, whether they're younger or older, to mm-hmm. care about community flourishing. I, I think my sense of hope is based on just the fact that we're all stamped with Trinitarian DNA. Hmm. It's part of what it means that we're made in the image of God. And that means that deep down under the various layers of our selfishness and under the various, um, you know, sort of siren songs of our individualistic culture, Hmm. um, there's something in us because of how God made us that longs for relationship that recognizes the truth that we are social beings um, that realizes that a life alone um, is not a flourishing life um, Mm -hmm. that, that, that recognizes that, that, um, you know, we really are our, our, our brother's keepers. Um, so, so, so I have some hope um, that because of the way we're wired, um, we can find that, that longing in us. Um, and then I, I think in terms of how to make it attractive or cast a vision for it uh, mm. among, among folks um i'm 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 struck by um i'm struck by uh something i remember from cs lewis in in the book the four loves i, I think that's the one this is in it's where he's, he's talking about like really deep friendship and and really deep community and um what do you need for that and you need sort of two things you need like face to face vulnerability mm-hmm. and authenticity mm-hmm. and real depth of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can't just be superficial. Yeah. We have a longing to have that, to be seen, to be known, to be recognized, to know someone else. Um, so you got to have that face-to-face direction. And then you have to have this sort of shared vision looking out, standing sort of shoulder to shoulder and and looking out, seeking the same good you know, being on the same journey, seeking the same mission. And when you have both of that, when you have that face-to-face depth of relationship and then that shared commitment to to looking out, that that is where we find really, really deep satisfaction in 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 the relationship. If you only have the the outward and and not that face-to-face, then you burn out mm-hmm. in seeking mm-hmm. the community's uh, flourishing because you you're just sort of this social activist that's out there yeah. doing all this stuff. Um, but if you but if you only are looking, you know, at one another, um, you have this sort of deep level of community and authenticity. Um, but you're not you're not getting outside of yourselves. <laughs> so yeah. you're not, uh, you're not a kind of expanding your, your view. So I think sort of helping people recognize, you know, that what's deeply satisfying are the, are the relationships that do both of those things. Um, and of course the, the, the looking out together 
um, usually what it is that we're pursuing together has something to do with the flourishing of our communities. Um, you know, maybe we don't all have exactly the same passion, um, mm -hmm. but a lot of those, a lot of those things that were were joined arm in arm to to do are really have to do with making our world a better place, right? Um, so I think I think talking about just the deep satisfaction that that goes with being deeply known and then mm -hmm. being jointly on mission, yeah, yeah. Uh, is is one way of doing that. Yeah, thank you for that expressing it as stamped with Trinitarian DNA. I love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so even though you say that you're not directly in the college, you're obviously like doing a lot of research. So uh, since we kind of talked about this when we met, uh, it'd be helpful to have your take on this. Uh, could you share with us an example of how you chose a research question as a way of using an area of expertise to partner with God in helping society flourish? And what suggestions would you offer to people in different vocations about how we can all harness our training to partner with God for his purposes in our world? Yeah, so um, uh, my boss has often referred to me as a scholar practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I love doing uh, applied research. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for for example, um, years ago um, we had a, we had an incredible privilege. Um, we we had some money from the Kellogg Foundation, and um, make a lot of make a long story short, we had a lot of freedom about sort of what kind of things to do. And and uh, I decided that I wanted to do this research project that would look at what are Hispanic churches doing. Uh, in terms of uh, their activities uh, in blessing their communities. Um, and the part of the motivation for that question was the sense that um, there was a, a, a pretty good literature out there about the role of the, the Black church uh, in community mm -hmm. development. And there were important books that had been written on that. And, um, and sort of that was somewhat of a known story um, but I didn't know personally very much about, well, what, what about, what are Hispanic churches doing? Surely they're doing something, but I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so that was, I was just personally really interested in that. But then, you know, to the, to the point of your question, um, how do you choose a research question that mm. sort of gives you this opportunity to uh, partner with God and, and make things better? I felt like, well, if I could find examples and sort of tell the story of what Hispanic churches were doing, um, that in itself had value, um, just sort of from the perspective of, you know, academics, like, you know, we like to know more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Now we'll just have greater, greater knowledge. Um, but, but I designed the project so that um, the things that we produced out of it we're not only, I mean, we did do a sort of a serious academic white paper type thing, a report with a center that was at Notre Dame uh, University. Okay. But what I was most proud of was that we produced this series of what we called instructional profiles, 
which were these really attractive um, kind of booklets and they were bilingual. So if you like had the, had the cover one way and you read it, you know, this way it was in English and then you flipped it over and then kind of read it the other way, it would be in Spanish. And there were eight of them and they were like little case studies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reason that, um, that I wanted to create that as a deliverable from the research project was I felt like that was the kind of product that could actually lead to the potential multiplication of more Hispanic churches doing stuff in their communities Hmm. um, because they could get inspired by something that another Hispanic church was Hmm. doing. and they could, I, I deliberately tried to put myself in the in the shoes of a Hispanic pastor thinking, well, if I was a Hispanic pastor, what are the kinds of questions would I want this instructional profile to answer mm-hmm. um, about how you actually go about doing this literacy program or doing this, um, you know, college prep program or doing this homeless intervention program or doing this substance abuse recovery program, you know, what all these different things that we, that we found. Um, And so that, um, I I guess for me, that's an example of Mm -hmm. kind of doing a research project with a real aim of having, uh, having it multiply potential action on the ground. Um, that that advances um that advances the kingdom. So I guess the other the other part of your question had to do with like um you know how can other people in a, how can people yeah. in other vocations mm-hmm. sort of harness their training. Yeah. Um I mean I I think the I think the opportunities really in a way are endless. Um mm. and I tell a lot of stories about that of course in in mm-hmm. kingdom calling. Um but I think maybe for for college professors, one of the things that I'm I'm kind of high on is the the whole concept of community based research. You know, mm-hmm. where you're you're trying to get your students thinking about some kind of research project that they can be involved in. But but you come up with the you come up with these research projects based in part of like you know. <laughs> what the curriculum needs to cover, right? You've got, that's important, but you could be listening to organizations in your community, nonprofit groups or, or neighborhood associations or local, you know, government agencies who are saying, you know, we have this problem and we need research on it, or we did this intervention, but we don't know whether it worked very well or not. Mm -hmm. We don't have any money to pay for an evaluation, or we we're thinking we'd like to do a project on this sort of thing, but um, you know, we don't really know if that's what's really needed. And, you know, so I just think there's opportunities for crafting research projects that um, really help local um, entities, you know, in the community where the where the university is, is housed. Mm. Uh, and, and at the same time, provide these amazing uh, hands-on, you know, kind of uh, practical research uh, opportunities for, for students. Yeah. Thank you for sharing uh, your, like an example from your own life and then mm-hmm. giving guide, kind, some kind of guidance to you know, ways 
that we could pick generally as well. Yeah. Uh, so most of us are happy when we discover God's creational intent for our vocations. But we tend to be a bit hesitant in naming sin in our disciplines. What practices do you recommend in training ourselves to recognize sin in our subject areas? I think that there's just a whole sort of series of questions that it's helpful for Christians who are kind of in the same field to kind of come together every now and then mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and and discuss together, um, you know, questions like um, who, who would benefit from the kind of vocational knowledge and power that we have, mm-hmm. but they're not benefiting because they kind of can't get access to what we offer, yeah. right? Because it's too expensive or they don't know how to get it or whatever. So kind of like one way that you find the brokenness in your vocation is to figure out like, who are you serving and who are you not serving mm-hmm. that, that sort of need need to be served? Um, and, and then I think, you know, kind of thinking a little bit about um, like, where are we just really cynical in this particular profession? Mm. You know, what, what are the sources of, of, of cynicism that, that probably will reveal certain ways in which the, the field is, is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, asking maybe um, what are, what are the common pitfalls of idolatry that people in mm-hmm. this particular profession seem to kind of fall into right yeah um and and then I think so so I think people within the same discipline can have those kinds of conversations and and, you know and and try to be ruthlessly honest with one another Mm -hmm. about those Mm -hmm. things at the same time because we're in it we're close to it right and yeah. therefore, we may have some blinders. Right. So, so also inviting colleagues from mm-hmm. other disciplines, yeah. you know, to say, well, when you look in in our discipline, um, mm-hmm. what do you see? Um, what do you see that maybe yeah. we we have a more difficult time uh, seeing? Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Uh, so, one of the examples you mentioned that is ripe for reform in civic life is the area of course and public discourse. How can Christians in academia both model and post spaces for civil discussion and debate around contentious topics? What do you see as the role of churches in this area? Well, gosh, if if I, if the academy can't be a place where we actually have a, a healthy, vigorous <laughs> but yeah. civil conversation, we're we're in some some dire straits. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to, you have to listen well, you have to, you have to model really listening well, you have to model being willing to really invite people with, you know, you have a panel discussion, and you actually really work hard on getting different views represented. Um, as opposed to, you know, kind of packing the panel one way or another. (laughs) Um, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of wisdom in, um, thinking about kind of the, the types of gatherings that we have. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, if you're going to have some big event and there's a bunch of media people there, 
And um, there's not, you know, the whole way that the event is organized sort of lends itself to people having to speak very succinctly about very complicated things, hmm. right? You, hmm. You've set yourself up for okay. the sharing of sound bites, <laughs> which hmm. doesn't help anybody, right? Hmm. You know, so part of it may be that, you know, we've got to think about smaller symposia hmm. that, that takes place over the course of a day and that involves some table fellowship uh, and that doesn't have a million participants in it and maybe is not something that you invite, you know, uh, media <laughs> to. Mm -hmm. you, you set a table um, figuratively and literally um, for, for, for real dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you do things like inviting people to I mean, I, when I think about the kinds of conversations I've been involved in um, that actually felt like, wow, people of differing views came together and we actually heard one another. We learned one. We learned something about one another. We learned something about one another's views. Mm -hmm. We walked away, maybe not changed in our own position, but maybe more sympathetic mm -hmm. to another position or at least more informed mm -hmm. or maybe even chastened a bit by a stereotype that we realized that we had that then got exposed. When I think about the settings that I've been in where that was the outcome, you know, they tended to be more like what I just described. Mm -hmm. And particularly when they were things that were um, preceded by the sharing of articles or papers. Um, mm. So, you know, having a thing where each person actually writes a little paper and shares it with, with you know, others and you mm -hmm. actually read, you know, what the person has to has to say before you before you come, you know. Um, so I think I think giving a lot of thought to the actual construction mm. of the of the event that uh, around which the dialogue happens, I think that actually really matters. Hmm. Um, and can be done more wisely or less, less wisely. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a bit of a shift, but you talk a bit about the Sabbath in your book as well. And uh, I mean, this applies not just to academics. I'm just going to focus the question on academics as professors. How can we incorporate Sabbath rest for ourselves and our students and junior colleagues? Yeah, I I was wondering, like, um, could you say more about, like, do you think that there's, like, special practices that are needed by, acad by, by academics or professors as opposed to people in other vocations? I suppose when you exercise, I'm not sure how it compares to people uh, in other professions, but like when uh, the university world is sometimes looks very egalitarian, and and sometimes we do not, uh, uh, we're not cognizant of the power we possess. Depending on the kind of, uh, I mean, just because your students might call you by your first name, but you're not equal uh, in that relationship. So, uh, uh, what they perceive or what you in fact, actually tell them about like expectations uh, 
you know, whether people feel that, you know, if an email goes out on like Friday evening that they cannot oh. wait Monday morning, that even something as simple as that. Uh, and, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, I think there's just some basic kind of Sabbath rules that, that all of us need to grow in following myself included. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just basically deciding that there is time for ceasing, right? Mm-hmm. Actually making that your practice. Um, and in, and encouraging students to make it their practice, um, even grad students. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know that grad students feel like that is a luxury that is beyond them. And I, you know, I certainly... I'm sympathetic. I mean, grad school was probably the hardest time or one of the hardest times in my own life, although that was partly my own stupidity because I was working more or less full time at the same time as being a full time graduate student. So um, that was all part of my workaholism at that time in my life. Um, But I I remember one of my housemates, um, you know, kind of deciding that absolutely she was going to take a 24 hour sabbath every week Mm. um as a grad student and um it was really transformative um Mm. uh for her um so just you know basically deciding to do it and then yeah i mean um modeling modeling that and encouraging uh encouraging others uh and and permitting them to to, to have Sabbath um, by respecting um, your demands on their times, right? Um, I mean, one of the things I, I personally have to, I'm not in the academy, but I work a really weird schedule because I, I deal with a lot of health issues. And so I basically work when I can, and then I'm not working when I can't. Um, and sometimes that means I'm working at a weird time of the day because I've slept from two o'clock in the afternoon to five o'clock and now it's seven o'clock and I have a little bit of energy. And so I'm working now it's eight, mm-hmm. it's nine o'clock, whatever. Um, and if I send emails at that, at that time to other people, I, I deliberately, if, if I don't know them well, if they know me, then they just know, oh, this is just, this is Amy. And we know that she just sends emails at all weird times of the day, because that's just, how she has to live. Um, but if they don't know me, you know, I try to be really good about saying, I'm not expecting an answer like right oh, now, yeah. or you don't need to get back to me about this. Um, or I'm sending this to you on Friday, but I do not expect to hear from you. Um, so kind of um, just giving people that, that, that permission, right. And trying to have your own life organized enough so that you're not putting those um demands on on other people you know getting your own getting your own act together enough so that your last minute emergency doesn't create a bunch of stress for somebody else yeah. you know you state that human flourishing requires some degree of economic capacity sometimes our attitudes to wealth creation can be ambiguous especially if we elevate service oriented professions over profit driven ones 
what role should money play in how we choose our jobs, how we encourage our students in their career choices, and how can we be good stewards of the things we possess? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I'm into economic development, so I actually think that the creation of wealth is a good thing. I mm. think money is a is a good thing, um, and that it's a good thing that has to be set into its right and proper position because it as soon as we make it the ultimate thing then we've idolized it and then we're in degreed and then we're in a mess um and that's particularly dangerous and powerful when it comes to money because money is the one thing that gets actually ascribed you know a demonic title in the scripture right you know mammon that there's actually some spiritual mm. power called mammon that is that is kind of underneath um underneath this this whole idea of 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 wealth so so wealth is something that we both affirm and have to be really careful um with but i do i do think that building our economic capacity is a is a good thing um because it it gives us the capacity to love others um you know the the good samaritan not only had compassion he he actually had some economic capacity mm. you know he he had he had resources because of whatever work he was in that when he finds the wounded traveler on the jericho road he has wine and oil and and clothes and bandages and money to give to the innkeeper. You know, he has resources that enable him to share. If he only had compassion and he had nothing else, then he wouldn't have been able to be as much of a help. So so economic capacity does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I like to tell like the fellows or um, folks in this age group, yeah, money is money is an issue you should think about when you're picking a job. It's one factor. Um, it's a legitimate factor. Um, but boy, it's it's not the only factor, <laughs> and it's not the top ranking uh, factor. Um, and it's it's right positioning among the various factors depends a little bit, I think, on your individual circumstances. You know, as a as a single person, when I'm making a decision, um, money may may play some role in it, but there's it's not going to have as high a role as if I'm a, a mom or a dad looking for a new job, and I've got three little kids that I need to take care of. You know, the amount of money that the job pays is going to make you know. There's just it's a weightier it's a weightier factor right mm-hmm. um so so we have to take into account those who are dependent uh upon us but but yeah but the, again there's just this putting it in its right place and what one of the things i will say um when i think about helping sort of younger people who are, you know, they're out there looking maybe for their first jobs or they're early in their career and they they have an opportunity and 
And they're actually really thinking about this job versus that job. And money is one of the things that they're, you know, they're thinking about, or they're anticipating career choices. And they're thinking about, well, if I do this career choice, I'll make more money than if I do this career choice. So these are the kinds of things that are uh, going around in their heads. One of the things that I find is just really helpful, and it's not rocket science, but actually, actually sitting down with people and helping them crunch some numbers. Like it's astonishing to me how little reality some of our younger folks have about about what they're what they need. Um, I'm thinking of a time when I was asked to give a talk over at the University of Virginia to the Law Christian Fellowship Group, and um, I was I was uh, talking with one of the gals in the group who was in my small group at church, and she knew that she was not going to go into what's known as big law, like kind of the corporate law, you know, white collar law, big firm, make lots and lots of money. But many, many, many of her colleagues in law school were going to do that. And some of them were going to do that almost exclusively because they thought they needed to do that because they, that was the only way that they saw themselves being able to repay their big loans that they took out to go to law school in the first place. And so anyway, I literally ended up chucking my <laughs> talk and I was in a room with them with a with literally like an old fashioned whiteboard. And I just went up there and I had made all these calculations and I made a whole calculation that that was based on what my friend was telling me about, you know, the amount of law school debt that people have and what they're doing and basically walked them through the particulars to help them budget out and see like what actually do you do you have to go to the law firm that pays you $400,000 a year in order for you to survive <laughs> and you know the answer was no don't actually <laughs> now you do if your idea of survival means you have to live in your own place you have to be able to pay the car note on that nice car that you got. You need to be able to, you know, it's like we throw in all these wants and call them needs. And then we think, well, you know, I've got to make it. I mean, how am I ever going to make it if I don't make at least 150000 a year? Like, how am I going to survive? And it's like, well, you know, I live on $25,000 a year, actually. You can survive. <laughs> So it's funny, but like actually sitting down and helping young people like crunch the real numbers and and help them recognize you can make choices that bring your expenses way down. You know, the simple choice to say, I'm going to get a roommate. So that's part of what I think we can we can do with people when they're when money is sort of creeping up on the hierarchy, mm -hmm. some of the reasons for that are okay. And some of the reasons for that are based on misperceptions mm -hmm. that we can maybe helpfully um, unveil mm -hmm. by, a, by a pretty pragmatic exercise of sharpening the pencil and getting the calculator out and actually talking to people about, you know, this is what average rents are. And this is what, you know, 
And you actually go through some of that stuff with folks. We hope listening in on this book club experience might inspire you to join us for one of these events in the future. If you're listening to this episode in real time, you could look into our upcoming Spring 2024 Book Club. We'll share all of the details in the show notes, or you can find more about this or other book clubs at thewell.intervarsity.org. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear an excerpt from the conversation where Dr. Sherman talks about thriving in her life as a single woman. The Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from Jasmine's conversation with Dr. Sherman. I I have a best friend, for one thing. And I think we're really committed to to one another um, and have both that sort of face-to-face and the the shared uh, uh, kind of being on mission. Um, I'm pretty invested in my small group. I actually am a small group leader and spend a lot of time in that role and love that role. And um, I go, uh, I've got another group of gals um there's a little bit of overlap between the church small group and this other group that we call the beach buddies group there's just a group of us that have been going to the going every week um for gosh 12 years now a group of about seven or eight of us go to the beach every year together um and then all throughout the year we're some of them are local a few of them are just a, a little distance away, not, not too far away. Um, and I think we do a really good job caring for one another. Um, and we have other traditions. Uh, we always, you know, we share, we always get together for New Year's Eve. Um, we celebrate birthdays together. Um, we have, you know, regular patterns of, of, of interaction with one another. And, um, and we've got a really strong prayer, uh, commitment to each other. There's a lot of, lot of group uh, group texts that go around about you know this this prayer re- prayer request um answers to prayer uh etc cetera, etc cetera. um so just trying to um you know make those make those commitments i i don't technically live alone because i have a basement apartment in my home and that was very deliberate i wanted to have a home that would have that capacity for a few different reasons. And one of those reasons was a, a, a little bit of an opportunity to have sort of a, a household community um, in my in my house um, and yet have it be a little bit different than when I was a student and a grad student actually having a, a roommate. You know, I'm 58 years old. I don't necessarily really 
want exactly a roommate right now, but it's really nice having, I always have young couples live down there. I've had a whole bunch of different young couples over the years. They come and stay for a couple of years at a time. Um, but it's sweet. That's a, that's a sweet uh, relationship. So those are some of the, some of the ways that I try to find uh, community as a single person. Mm-hmm.